For more information about our teaching and preaching ministry, you can find us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The following sermon has been brought to you by Cornerstone Orlando, making disciples for the glory of God. of our sermon this evening is raised from the dead, raised from the dead. We're slowly working through this interlude that lies between the sixth and the seventh trumpets in the cycle of trumpets, where in this interlude, we both have the, the recommissioning of John as God's eschatological prophet for the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we see the commissioned church as witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ. We see the church in her witness, and so we're going to continue to explore that picture at the end of this parenthesis, this literary break that takes place uh, before the sounding of the seventh trumpet uh, near the end of the age. So uh, if you'll permit, I want to read verses 1 through 14 for context. We'll pray and then consider particularly verses 11 through 14 tonight in our sermon. This is the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 through 14. Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood saying, rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court, which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. If anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. When they finish their testimony, The beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom in Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. Those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another, because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Now after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. They heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. In the same hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. This is the word of God. Amen. Amen. Pray with me. Uh, Father in heaven, thank you for the book of the Revelation. Lord, thank you for how this book um, encourages your church, how it reveals the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ, how it announces to us, proclaims to us the end from the beginning, that we might know those things which which are coming to pass and which shall shortly come to pass. Uh, Thank you, Lord, for the way that encourages your people in her witness for the Lord Jesus Christ to endure, to persevere to the end. Thank you, Lord, um, for the joy that is set before us, that with Christ, 
in union with Christ, we may face our suffering with endurance, with perseverance, knowing that perseverance produces character, or that that character, uh, proven character, leads to hope. We thank you, Lord, for these precious promises. We thank you for um, the soon return of our Lord Jesus Christ and pray that he would come and come quickly. For your glory, God, we pray in his name. Amen. The title of our sermon this, this evening is Raised from the Dead, Revelation chapter 11, verses 11 through 14. So welcome back now to our Sunday evening study. We're going through the revelation of Jesus Christ together, and we are considering uh, in this section of text, Revelation chapter 11, 10 and 11 in particular, we're considering the witness of God's martyroi, or God's martyrs from Revelation 11, God's witnesses. We know from our study thus far that the two witnesses symbolize the Lord's church as she bears witness for the Lord Jesus Christ to the gospel. And these two witnesses now testify during the time period that lies between the first coming of the Lord and his second coming. They testify throughout the duration of this cycle, uh, in particular now under our consideration, the cycle of the trumpets. It's a time period signified by references to Daniel, including uh, defining that time period as a period of 42 months. 1,260 days, times, times, and half a time, or three and a half years. We're gonna talk about that a little bit tonight, and I hope to help clarify that reference, okay? We're gonna talk about that time period and what that corresponds to. Like John, though, like John, commissioned as the Lord's eschatological prophet, the end times prophet in Revelation chapter 10, prophesying of those things which must shortly come to pass, these two witnesses of God are also commissioned. They're commissioned as God's eschatological witnesses for Jesus Christ during this time of the end. The church has a job to do. And the church is employed as witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, that's our responsibility. We've been given a great commission. We are here to be witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ. We have responsibility. These are, as described in our text, these are the two olive trees. They are Zechariah's sons of oil. They are the two lampstands standing before the God of all the earth. That's an image that we've seen even in the book of Revelation representing the church. Verses seven through 10 have pressed us against the end of the age now, against the end of the cycle and against the end of the age as we have been brought now to the very end of their testimony, the end of the witness of the church upon the earth. They, in this section of text, faithfully fulfill their mandate, and John records here that they finish their testimony. They complete their mission. They're brought to the end of that mission. We see in our text the ascending beast making war with them, uh, overcoming them, overpowering them, defeating them as it were, and killing them in our text. We see their dead bodies lying in the streets of this world, so to speak. We see the indignity that is demonstrated on them by their enemies, not permitting them to be buried. We see the scorn and derision of this world heaped upon them. We see the, the gloating of this hostile world over them. And in all of that, we're reminded, one, of the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ, who faced suffering, persecution, mocking, scorning, derision on our behalf as he went to Calvary's cross to die in our place. So we certainly see the suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ. These witnesses identified with the Lord Jesus Christ in his own suffering. And we're reminded from this testimony that those who desire to live godly in this present age will suffer persecution. As witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, in the words of Revelation 11, we torment 
those who dwell upon the earth. Why are the words of the gospel, why are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ a torment to those who dwell upon the earth? One of the words of our Lord, um, the world hates him because he testifies of it that their deeds are evil, right? The very gospel testifies of this world, this world that its deeds are evil and that there is a judgment that is coming. Uh, the people of this world, uh, you're, if you're here and you've never turned in faith to Jesus Christ, you must turn in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ before that judgment falls. There is a time coming. There is a day appointed by God in which he will judge this world in righteousness by the man whom he has appointed. He's given evidence of this by raising that man from the dead. Now, like John, this church has been commissioned to preach the gospel. We are not promised in that mission. We're not promised a Christian life that is free of tribulation. In fact, we're promised that there will be tribulation. We're promised that there will be persecution. The Bible does not say that we will avoid tribulation or that we'll somehow escape tribulation. The Bible says that we're going to go through tribulation. This entire age is characterized uh, as it pertains to the church, is characterized by the word tribulation. Matter of fact, if you do a word study and look at those words used of tribulation in the New Testament, in virtually every case, it pertains to that suffering, that difficulty, that adversity faced by the church during this age of the church. We will face tribulation. So to answer that question, of many dispensationalists, yes, we will go through the tribulation as we serve as witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ during this age. On contrary, contrary to that belief that we'll somehow escape difficulty, escape tribulation in this life, the Bible everywhere affirms that God's people will go through difficulty, will go through adversity. And that is, brothers and sisters, again, it's an identification with our Lord who bought us. He bought us with his own blood, having gone through tribulation for the joy set before him he endured the cross, despising the shame. Brothers and sisters, for the joy set before us, we must do the same following his example. All who desire to live godly in union with Christ Jesus will suffer literally. The word there is pursuit. They'll suffer pursuit. They'll suffer hostility, suffer harassment. You can imagine the apostle Paul being chased around the Mediterranean by Judaizers, right? He suffers pursuit, suffers persecution, suffers tribulation. Philippians chapter one, verse 27, Paul says this, during this speaking of the church's witness during this time, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit, stand with endurance, that you persevere in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, why? Because we follow Jesus Christ in faith, trusting him, which is to them, those adversaries, proof of perdition, but to you, proof of salvation and that from God. Because to you, it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. Brothers and sisters, in that, we follow in the footsteps of a great cloud of witnesses who has gone before us in preaching the gospel. The Lord Jesus Christ himself, the apostles, of which Paul is a preeminent example, faced suffering, faced persecution for their witness for Jesus Christ. We will do the same. The Lord himself suffered tremendous hostility at the hands of wicked men. Our Christian brothers and sisters throughout history have suffered tremendous hostility following his example. And when we go through such extended periods of ease, 
uh, relative ease the way that we have over the course of our lives here in this country is sometimes easy to forget that we've been appointed to suffering ourselves. Uh, We can forget that uh, we should not think it's strange (laughs) when we fall into various trials, right? Knowing that we, as Paul has said, are appointed to these things. We also suffer for his namesake. We will go through adversity. Um, We've been appointed to such for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, If our text ended at chapter 11, verse 10, we might think that the church at the end of this this age has finally been defeated. That all of that suffering, all of that adversity, all of those trials ended with the defeat of the church. The beast makes war against them, overcomes them, and kills them. But that's not the end of the story, is it? (laughs) That's not the end of the story. That's not the end of the cycle. That's not the end of the age. That's not the end of the story. It's Revelation chapter 11, verses 11 through 13 now, that give us cause, give us encouragement to persevere through whatever suffering that we face. Verse 11, now after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them. Those who were killed, their dead bodies, their corpses lying in the streets, they stood on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. They heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. They ascended to heaven in a cloud and their enemies saw them. In the same hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell and the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. Second woe is past. Behold, a third woe is coming quickly. So let me ask you a question. In considering their witness and in considering what lies before them, what lies before us, brothers and sisters, What is it that fueled the faith of the apostles as they witnessed for the Lord Jesus Christ uh, to their own death? What fueled their faith? What compelled them? What compelled the disciples, having fled Jerusalem at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, having scattered, what compelled those apostles to turn around, go right back into the same city that crucified the Lord and preach the gospel to their deaths? What compelled them to do such a thing? What compelled these two witnesses to preach Christ to their own deaths? What compelled Paul to march his way around the Mediterranean, preaching Christ, being persecuted as he was, left for dead in Lystra, right? Facing certain execution in Rome. What compelled the apostle Paul? What compelled ultimately? What compelled ultimately the Lord Jesus Christ himself? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 defines it as the joy that was set before them. The joy that was set before them. That joy set before them represented, if you will, in resurrection. Resurrection from the dead to life everlasting in union with the Lord Jesus Christ. The joy that was set before them. Therefore, chapter 12, verse one, therefore we also, brothers and sisters, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, many who have gone to the stake, For the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ, many who have borne testimony to the Lord Jesus Christ to their own deaths, since we are surrounded by that great cloud of witnesses, let us in our own generation lay aside every weight. Let us lay aside the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us in our generation as we carry the torch now. Let us run that race looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that it was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has now sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. By, that's an amazing text. 
That's a, that is just a, a, an encouraging, such an encouraging text. By linking that great cloud of witnesses and by linking us to the example of Jesus Christ, we are to set before us, brothers and sisters, the same joy. We have the same joy set before us. It's the joy of resurrection, the joy of worshiping our triune God in the assembly of the saints in heaven, the joy of uh, our inheritance, taking possession of our inheritance as those in union with Jesus Christ, those who are joint heirs with Christ. The greater the joy that is set before us, the greater our embrace of that heavenly treasure that awaits us, the greater our capacity to endure whatever lies ahead. Amen? The more that we see that treasure, and I'm not speaking of earthly or worldly riches. There will be riches in heaven. But I'm thinking about the treasure that is the Lord Jesus Christ, the treasure of um, union with the Lord Jesus Christ, the treasure of dwelling in the presence of our God for all of eternity. As we consider the treasure that lies ahead, the joy that is set before us, the more and more and more that we comprehend, the more that we apprehend the reality of that through the eyes of faith, the greater our capacity to endure whatever trial, whatever suffering lies ahead of us, uh, the greater that we'll be able to brush it off as it were, and forge ahead. Uh, And if you're like me, (laughs) and we're honest with ourselves, trials and tribulations are often difficult. This one that we've just been through is really difficult, really difficult. But the more that we embrace with the eyes of faith what lies ahead, the more that we're gonna be able to march straight through those. When it says in Hebrews chapter 12 that the Lord Jesus Christ endured the cross despising the shame, the word there for despising means that he counted it a common thing. A trifle. He counted it nothing of no, of no significance. He counted it of no significance. The shame that was heaped upon him by this wicked world, he counted it as a minor, as a minor thing. Why? The joy that was set before him. The joy that was set before him. We can endure suffering now knowing that something greater lies ahead. Revelation chapter 11, verses 11 through 13, reminds us of that promised resurrection. It reminds us of that promised joy. If you remember in our study of Romans chapter eight, verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time aren't even worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. The sufferings of this present time are a trifle, are a minor thing. Uh, They're just uh, an insignificant thing. When compared, you see Paul's making the exact same point. Don't you? Um, I'm making the same point that Paul's making. (laughs) Paul's saying that in comparison with the joy that awaits, in comparison with the glory that shall be revealed in us, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared. They're like dust on the scale. They're not even going to tip the balance. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly awaits for the revealing of the sons of God. And we await with the creation, the revealing of the sons of God in glory. Therefore, Peter says, gird up the loins of your mind. (laughs) We talked this morning about renewing your mind, being transformed by the renewing of your mind. Gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober and rest your hope fully upon the joy that is set before us, right? Rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Gird up your loins, 
Renew your mind, set your hope on that joy, that glory that only comes after the suffering. And that suffering associated with our faithful witness during this present evil age. We must endure as faithful witnesses during this present evil age. That's the context of our text this evening in Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11, the church completes her witness during the first half of Daniel's 70th week. Uh, That three and a half years representative of the entire church age, which is 1,260 days or 42 months. We see all those references. We'll talk about those in a moment. And at the end of her testimony, at the end of her testimony, at the end of the cycle, at the end of the age, there will come a period of great tribulation. From Matthew chapter 24, verse 21, great tribulation such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Those shortened days, in this case, represented by the three and a half days of great tribulation that the church suffers at the hand of this ascendant beast. A period representing the climax of this age, the climax of tribulation, the climax of the cycle, a time period in which the church is given into the hand of the beast who is permitted to overcome them and kill them. It's a time period that Daniel himself also had noted in Daniel chapter 7, verse 21. Listen, where Daniel says, I was watching and the same horn was making war against the saints, prevailing against them. Same language as Revelation 11, do you see? Until the ancient of days came and a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High and the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. Again, that brings us then to Revelation 11, verse 11. Now, after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them. They stood on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Great fear fell on those who saw them resurrected. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud and their enemies saw them. Now that reference, uh, the reference that opens verse 11 to three and a half days is a reference that we've encountered multiple times now as we walk through the book of Revelation. It's a reference that's, that's made in multiple places in scripture, multiple times in Revelation. And I wanna make sure that we understand that particular reference. I know that that is a, a difficult uh, aspect of understanding our text, but we're going to encounter this reference to this time period, certainly in Revelation 11, but also as we get into Revelation 12, Revelation 13. So it's important that we understand it now. And this is a reference to a time period that's introduced to us in Daniel chapter 9. Turn back to Daniel chapter 9 with me. It's a reference to Daniel's 70th week. And I want us to take just a brief moment. I want to walk through how these things are connected so that you can see them, and then I I just commend them to further study. You're going to have to um, look at these texts yourselves, uh, ponder them yourself, meditate on them yourself, and put these pieces uh, together to help you understand what we're dealing with when we encounter this reference. We counter this reference in multiple ways. We encounter it here, three and a half days. Uh, Sometimes we see a reference to three and a half years, times, times, and half a time, 42 months, 1,260 days. We see multiple references at the same period of time. It's important we understand what that is. So in Daniel chapter nine, we see a prophecy, a vision given to Daniel of the end, okay, of the end. Daniel, if if you remember the context of Daniel's prophecy, Daniel is in exile with the southern kingdom. He's in Babylon, right? And Daniel is reading in the prophet Jeremiah 
of the length of time that their exile is to last. He reads in Jeremiah, Jeremiah 25, that they have 70 years appointed for their exile. 70 years. So Daniel does a quick study of the math. He figures it out. It's like, oh, the 70 years, they're coming up. It's coming to an end. And so Daniel begins to pray. Lord, right, restore us. Uh, restore us, restore us. Uh, that's the, the prayer that opens Daniel chapter nine. Um, Daniel is told at the end of his prayer, before he can finish his prayer, that it's not going to be 70 years at which time the kingdom will be established and the end will come, but 70 times seven, so to speak, or 70 weeks of years. Uh, it's going to be a multiplier of 70 times seven. And this uh, is reminiscent of the sevenfold judgments in Leviticus. If you remember those sevenfold judgments, I'll repay you seven times according to your sin, right? It's not going to be 70 years until the end comes, but 70 times seven, uh, essentially, before the end comes. And so we see this prophecy given to Daniel in Daniel chapter nine, beginning in verse 24. So rather than 70 years, the angel tells Daniel that 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. And we know from the prophecy, these are 70 weeks of years, seven years to each week, just like there are seven days to a week. In this case, there are seven years to a week. 70 weeks are determined for your people, for your holy city to do these things. Finish the transgression, finish it. To make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness to seal up vision and prophecy. In other words, that, this is the end, right? He's speaking of the end to anoint the most holy place. What most holy place is going to be anointed at the end? The new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem descending out of heaven as a bride adorned for her husband, right? The new creation. All of this is a prophecy that, if you will, of the very end of the age. It's the very end of the age where transgression is finished, where we, he makes a complete end of sins, um, a complete and final and full reconciliation for iniquity to bring in everlasting righteousness. Has everlasting righteousness been ushered in? Now, in one sense through the church, yes. But in one sense, no. There's an already and a not yet because people are still sinning. There is still unrighteousness reigning on this earth, right? Um, to seal up vision and prophecy. In other words, to close it. All of this comes at the end. Verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, the Lord Jesus Christ, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. A total period of 69 weeks. Now that's 69 of the 70 weeks. Remember, 70 weeks has been appointed, 70 weeks of years. By the time the Lord Jesus Christ comes, 69 of those 70 weeks have gone by, right? They've passed. The street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublesome times. And after the 62 weeks, right? Remember seven weeks, then 62 weeks. After the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. The Lord Jesus Christ is crucified and not for his own sins, the sins of his people, right? And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood till the end of the war. Desolations are determined. So the Lord Jesus Christ is crucified. Um, the people of the prince who is to come. If you look back, flip the page back one to a Daniel chapter eight. Let me give you an example of that verbiage. 
in the vision of the ram, the vision of the goat given to us in Daniel chapter eight, look down at verse eight. Therefore, in this vision of the male goat, the vision of the male, uh, the male goat grew very, very great. When he became strong, the large horn was broken. In the place of it, four notable ones came up toward the four winds of heaven. We know this to be the kingdom of Greece. And out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south. You see these references to little horns. These are abominations of desolation. These are, if you will, in the, in the words of John, these are many antichrists who have already come. Okay, this particular Antichrist is Antiochus Epiphanes. It grew exceedingly uh, great toward the south, toward the east, toward the glorious land. That's Jerusalem, uh, Israel. And it grew up to the host of heaven and cast down some of the hosts and and, uh, some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. He even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host. He exceeded himself or exalted himself as prince. And by him... The daily sacrifices were taken away and the place of his sanctuary was cast down because of transgression. An army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices and he cast truth down to the ground. He did all this and prospered. You see these little horns, these abominations, these abominations who make desolate, these antichrists, you see them often prospering before they're defeated. Now turn back to Daniel chapter nine. Daniel chapter nine, verse 26, after Messiah is cut off, but not for himself, the people of the prince who is to come. Uh, This is not speaking of Jesus Christ. This is speaking of this evil prince who is to come. He is a hostile invader. How do we know that? Because he shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. It's exactly what happened in AD 70. The sanctuary, the city was destroyed. The end of it shall be with a flood and till the end, war is determined. He then shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. That one week is the one week that remains. It's the one week, Daniel's 70th week. Uh, This one, this prince who is to come, we know that behind Titus, was Satan. Behind Antiochus Epiphanes is Satan. Behind every Antichrist is the dragon, is the serpent of old, is the beast. Behind all of these are principalities and powers. So behind this one is one who makes a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, so what's half of seven? I need to do three and a half, three and a half. In the middle of the week, after three and a half years, Three and a half years of, you know, of the week. In the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. Now, the reason I make the point that this is not the Lord Jesus Christ, that it is a, one of these little horns that rises up and puts an end to sacrifice and offerings is because there is a messianic interpretation of these verses. People will try to say that this is speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's speaking of a hostile invader who destroys Jerusalem, destroys the temple. And here in the middle of the week, Remember that reference in the middle of the week after three and a half years, before the final three and a half years, so to speak, he puts an end to sacrifice and offering and on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate. That's what happens in the middle of this week. There comes one who on the wing of abominations makes desolate. He puts an end to sacrifice and offering until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolator. He does this until the judgment of God falls upon this desolator. 
Now remember that reference and turn with me to Matthew 24. Matthew 24. And Daniel chapter nine, remember, as you're turning to Matthew 24, you have Messiah cut off, not for himself. The people of the prince who come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood. And until the end, war is determined. He makes a covenant with many for one week. And all of these things happen during this one week. There's a first half of that week, and then at the beginning of the second half of that week, this one comes who puts an end to offering, puts an end to sacrifice, and on the wing of abominations makes desolate, okay? Matthew chapter 24. Jesus Christ went out, departed from the temple. His disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. Jesus said to them, do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, looking at this, these glorious buildings sitting on the temple mount, not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? When will this destruction take place? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? What is going to be the sign of the end? Two questions. When will this destruction come and what will be the sign of your return? And Jesus answered and said to them, take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. Jesus now is answering the first part of their question. What will be, when will these things happen? Many, uh, I am, uh, uh, many will come saying, I am the Christ, will deceive many. And you will hear of wars, rumors of wars. See that you're not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these things are the beginnings of sorrows. They are like, um, literally there, um, birth pains birth pains. That means they're going to increase in frequency and increase in severity until the end. Then, verse 9, they will deliver you up to tribulation. There's that word again. That's the tribulation. That's tribulation that marks this age which Jesus Christ is describing. What age, what period of time is Jesus Christ now describing? He's describing the period of time that those disciples in that day are living in. And that period of time is typological of our period of time. It's the same period of time, brothers and sisters, that we're living in. The things that happen to them are also the things that happen to us. This is typological also of our time. It's the age in which we also live. They will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. You'll be hated by all nations for my namesake. Then many will be offended, will betray one another, will hate one another. Many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. It's a, dep- a picture, if you will, of the church, even in our day, departing her first love. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. And then the end will come. So that which is typological, that which occurred in their day, that which was typological of our own day, this goes on. This pattern is repeated until the gospel of the kingdom is preached in the entire world and then the end will come. Therefore, verse 15, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, that's the reference that we read in Daniel chapter nine. Do you remember? Now, in the middle of the week, In Daniel chapter nine, remember, this one came in the middle of the week and on the wing of abominations, he made desolate. So what the Lord Jesus Christ just described in the first half of Matthew 24 down through verse 14 represents the first three and a half years 
of Daniel's 70th week. It's the first half of the week. Now we see in verse 15, we see the sign that was given to us in Daniel chapter nine, this desolator, this one who comes in the, in the middle of Daniel's 70th week and on the wing of abominations makes desolate. The Lord Jesus Christ is making reference to Daniel chapter nine. Do you see that? So now what he's about to describe is what takes place during the second half of Daniel's 70th week, the second three and a half years. Listen, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop go down, not take anything out of his house. Let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant, to those who, uh, to those who are nursing babes in those days, and pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation, such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. So what is the Lord making reference to? He's making reference to the second half of Daniel's 70th week, days in which there will be severe, severe tribulation, great tribulation. And if that is the case, that the tribulation of this age is marked by uh, as birth pains on a pregnant woman increasing in frequency and in severity until the end, that's exactly what we would expect, wouldn't it? That at the end, those pains are going to become more and more severe, and then the end will come. Then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ there, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. Therefore, if they say to you, look, he's in the desert, do not go out. Look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. He's speaking of this great tribulation that takes place at the end of the age. Verse 29, immediately. Now think about that with me. That tribulation, the great tribulation explained there from verse 15 to verse 28 that is representative of the second half of Daniel's 70th week is using language that is from AD 70 and the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70. In other words, that destruction, that um, destruction of Jerusalem, that slaughter of thousands upon thousands of Jews at the hands of Emperor Titus and the Romans is typological of the great tribulation that will take place at the end of the age. That occurrence, that event in AD 70 is a picture, if you will. It's a foreshadowing of that which will come at the end of the age, the great tribulation that will take place before the Lord Jesus Christ comes back. In verse 29, it's immediately after the tribulation of those days the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the power of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the son of man will appear in heaven and all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. They will gather together his elect from uh, the four winds, one from one end of heaven to the other. Now turn with me to Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11. And again, I want you to see how these periods of time are put together. In Revelation chapter 11, verse 1, John says, I was given a reed like a measuring rod. And the angel stood saying, rise, measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. Leave out the court, which is outside the temple. Do not measure it, for it has been given over to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. Verse 2. 
How long is 42 months? It's three and a half years. So this is the witness of the Lord's church. This is uh, the Lord's people. They're the ones worshiping in the naos. They're the ones who are measured off and sealed by God for worship. And the outer courts, the outer courts given over to the Gentiles for a period of three and a half years. Times, times, and half a time, 42 months. In other words, that three and a half years is a reference to the first half of Daniel's 70th week. It's a reference to the first half of Matthew 24. Can you see that age represented by that time period, right? It represents the first half of this cycle of trumpets. Now, if we keep going, he says, I'm going to, verse three, I will give power to my two witnesses and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. God's witnesses given power by the spirit. We see the spirit coming in Acts, don't we? At Pentecost, empowering his people for witness. He gives his spirit to empower his witnesses for a period of 1,260 days. How, much, how long is that? 42 months. How long is that? Three and a half years. The first half of Daniel's 70th week. How long does the church witness for the Lord Jesus Christ before her witness comes to an end? The entire first half of Daniel's 70th week, which is the entire length of the church age up until she finishes her testimony. And she finishes her testimony when we see this abomination of desolation come, right? These are, verse four, these are the two olive trees, the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth. In other words, they, they come in the power and in the spirit of Elijah, Fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy, like Elijah. In other words, these witnesses, these are witnesses for God, just like Elijah was. And they have power over water to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues, like who? Like Moses. And Moses was a witness for God during his age. And these come in the spirit and in the power of Moses. They perform a similar prophetic function to Moses, as it were. And they do this as often as they desire. Verse seven, when they finish their testimony, that's at the end of their witness. In this case, we know, we're going to see, this is at the end of the three and a half years, the first half of Daniel's 70th week. Their witness comes to an end. They finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit, this antichrist, right, that ascends, this little horn, this one who on the wing of abominations makes desolate. He makes war against them, overcomes them, and kills them. Same language used in Daniel chapter 7. Same language used in Daniel chapter 8. Same language used in Daniel chapter 9. Right, this beast, this little horn, this abomination makes war against God's people and God gives them into his hand for a time. Their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days. That's an interesting reference. We're sort of expecting to see another three and a half years representing the other half of Daniel's 70th week. Why is it that there's a reference now to three and a half days? What did Daniel make reference to? What did the Lord explicitly state in Matthew 24? That those days, the days representing the second half of Daniel's 70th week would be shortened for the sake of the elect. If they had not been shortened, then even the elect might be deceived by those signs and wonders done by this false prophet by the antichrist, right? So three and a half days, mercifully sh cut short for the sake of the elect. 
They will not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. Those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry and send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Now, after the three and a half days after this, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet. Great fear fell upon those who saw them. Brothers and sisters, this is a picture of resurrection. It's a picture of resurrection. After three and a half days, after those shortened days of great tribulation, intense tribulation, in which the people of God are persecuted by the beast, overcome and killed, their corpses lying in the street. After those three and a half days, that second half of Daniel's 70th week that is cut short because of the intensity of that persecution, because of the deceit of that false prophet, those shortened days, the breath of life from God entered them. They stood on their feet and great fear fell upon those who saw them. The Bible teaches, brothers and sisters, one resurrection of the dead at the end of the age. One resurrection of the dead. Uh, The resurrection of the righteous, resurrection of the unrighteous, the resurrection of the just and of the unjust. So at the conclusion of this brief, shortened period of intense tribulation that comes at the end of the age, end of the church age, we're given a picture of the resurrection of the church just before the blast of the seventh trumpet. And what did the Lord Jesus Christ say in Matthew 20? Chapter 24, he said, immediately, immediately following the tribulation of those days, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven, right? And the Lord Jesus Christ comes. And at the blast of the trumpet, (laughs) he gathers together his elect from the four corners of the earth, right? Then the end comes. We're ushered into everlasting glory. In the words of Daniel, the end has come, right? The consummation has come. Uh, He's made an end of Sin, end of transgression. He ushers in everlasting righteousness. Seal up vision and prophecy, folks. It's done, right? The Lord Jesus Christ has returned. We're given a picture here of the resurrection of the church. And it's the resurrection of the church in our text before the sounding of the seventh trumpet in verse 15. Immediately before the end of the cycle, before the sounding of the seventh trumpet, immediately before the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this language, the language of the text of resurrection here is drawn directly from Ezekiel 37. Turn there with me, Ezekiel 37. This language of resurrection drawn from a picture, a vision given to Ezekiel. It's from Ezekiel's vision of the valley of dry bones. Now, in Ezekiel 37, think with me now, the prophet is writing to a nation that is in exile because of their idolatry. So imagine Israel in exile, in the wilderness, so to speak, because of idolatry. This is a vision given to Ezekiel for the elect of God in exile of their restoration. So of those who are in exile in Babylon, God promises he's going to bring back a remnant He's going to deliver a remnant out of those in exile in Babylon. He's going to restore them. And that promised restoration is going to be as though it were from the dead. As though he were going to resurrect Israel from the dead. They have died. They're in Babylon. Their corpses have rotted. They're like dry, dusty bones in a desert. They're so dead. And God is going to resurrect from them a great army that's going to come out of exile in Babylon and come to himself, right? That's the picture of the Valley of Dry Bones in Ezekiel 37. 
Um, the nation in, in exile compared to dead, rotted, decomposing corpses, skeletons. All that remains of them are di- dry, dusty bones. And what Ezekiel is saying to the exiles in, in Babylon is that your return from Babylon will be like a resurrection from the dead. What is foreshadowed here in this vision is certainly the physical return of a remnant to Israel from captivity in Babylon. We see that return of a remnant happen in the history of Israel. You can read that in Ezra and see the outworking of that in Nehemiah. But what is foreshadowed in that is the eschatological resurrection of the true Israel of God. The restoration that God promises in Ezekiel 37 is foreshadowed by that return of the exiles to Babylon, but that is only a foreshadowing. It is only typological of a greater restoration of true Israel that God will bring out all of his people to himself. A true restoration, a restoration of the temple, as we talked about this morning, right? A restoration of um, the temple in the form of a garden paradise city of God descending out of heaven as a bride adorned for her husband, the new Jerusalem. Look at verse one with me, Ezekiel 37, verse one. The hand of the Lord came upon me, brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley and it was full of bones. Then he caused me to pass by them all around and behold, there were very many in the open valley and indeed they were very dry. And he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? So I answered, O Lord God, you know, that's a wise way to answer a question from God. Lord, you you know, (laughs) And he said to me, prophesy to these bones, say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones. In other words, we're brought to life from the word of God, amen? It's through the means of the word of God that life is is brought. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, surely I will cause breath to enter into you and you shall live. I will put sinews on you and bring flesh upon you, cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a noise and suddenly a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to bone. Indeed, as I looked, the sinews and the flesh came upon them and the skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. And he also said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me and breath came into them and they lived and stood upon their feet an exceedingly great army. In verse 10, especially that we see language in Revelation chapter 11, verse 11, don't we? It's the same language being used. Verse 11, then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. And we know from the New Testament, very clearly, explicitly stated by the apostles, in particular, the apostle Paul in the book of Romans, that the whole house of Israel include both the elect physical seed descendants of Abraham and the elect spiritual seed of Abraham, elect Jews and elect Gentiles who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. We know that represents the whole house of Israel. They indeed say, verse 11, our bones are dry, our hope is lost, we ourselves are cut off, Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, O my people, I will open your graves, cause you to come up from your graves, bring you into the land of Israel. Then you shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up from your graves. When I have raised you from the dead, I will put my spirit in you and you shall live and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, says the Lord. It's an amazing text. God is saying through the prophet Ezekiel to Israel that your restoration of the land from exile is going to be like a resurrection from the dead. 
That's true. Bringing back that remnant from Babylon was like a resurrection from the dead. Israel is dead in exile and God brings to life a remnant, brings them back to himself. The near-term return of the exiles from Babylon to, to Israel is typological. It points forward to a future, a true re- restoration. And we know this from the rest of Ezekiel. Uh, God is not speaking of that first um, restoration, that first return of exiles to Babylon under Ezra and Nehemiah. And if you remember, when the exiles come back to uh, Jerusalem and they lay the foundation of the temple, that first generation who had seen the former temple, they stand and weep. They weep because that foundation, this temple there that they're about to establish is not as glorious as the one that came before. And they recognize in that, that this is not a fulfillment of what God has promised. That there is something greater that is yet to come, but that this particular temple, they're laying the foundation for it is not what God has promised. God has promised something far more glorious. He's promised a true restoration, a far more glorious restoration. The language used in Revelation 11 is language used of the church at the end of the age. And that, the church at the end of the age, in the language of Revelation 11, will appear as good as dead. And we're surrounded by death in Babylon. And there will be a great resurrection. Their enemies will gloat for a period of time. And I'm reminded of that gloating from 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. Um, Peter says, uh, I stir you up, uh, your pure minds by way of reminder that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of our Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Where is this Messiah? Right? Where, where is this promise of his coming? Things, he's not coming back. Right? Mockers. These may gloat at the end of the age, they're going to gloat over the, their marginalizing of the church, but their gloating is short-lived. We are not to despair, brothers and sisters. We're not to despair. We're not to be discouraged. We're not to lose hope. We know the end that God has determined. He has promised resurrection. He's promised resurrection. And brothers and sisters, if you happen to die for your witness for Jesus Christ, you're going to be raised from the dead. (laughs) You're going to be raised from the dead. In other words, God's people are invincible, invincible. There's going to be a resurrection. Now, there is a sense in thinking about Ezekiel 37, there is a sense in which this is taking place, this restoration, this resurrection. There is a sense in which it's taking place now under the preaching of the gospel. Anytime anyone puts his faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the breath of life enters him. He stands on his feet and joins the army. There is a sense in which at the preaching of the gospel, this resurrection is even now taking place. There is an already and a not yet. There's another sense in which this is a picture of the resurrection of God's people at the end of the age. God has determined one resurrection to take place at the end of the age, general resurrection of all men, the just and the unjust. Here we see in Revelation 11, we see this resurrection take place of God's witnesses during the second, at the end of the second half of Daniel's 70th week, at the very end of the age, before the return of Jesus Christ, or at the return of Jesus Christ. Paul speaks of that resurrection as it pertains believers in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 50. Paul says, now this I say, brethren, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, 
nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. You heard that language before? For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible. The dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. This corruptible must put on incorruption. This mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where's your sting? Oh, Hades, where's your victory? Revelation chapter 11, verse 11. Now after the three and a half days, those shortened days of intense tribulation, the breath of life from God entered them. They stood on their feet and great fear fell upon those who saw them. Gloating came to an abrupt end. (laughs) Gloating ceased, mocking ceased and fear befell them. Not a healthy fear of God, like those who love the Lord and cling to him in faith, but a fear of God like the Egyptians had when the plagues of God were being poured out in Egypt. That kind of fear. Fear likely mixed with the realization of their own peril. They're dancing, singing, in glee, making jokes, giving gifts to one another while their dead dead bodies lie in the street. They're raised up, the breath of life enters them. They're caught up into heaven. Their glee, their gloating ends and they think to themselves, "Uh uh-oh, right? And then the end comes. They watched as Ezekiel did. What do they see? They saw those bones, as it were, come to life, an exceeding great army. Verse 12, they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. We'll talk about that next week. They ascended to heaven in a cloud and their enemies saw them. What a glorious picture of the end, amen? And again, brothers and sisters, that should encourage the church because of the greater our capacity to embrace through faith those promises of God to us, the church, and in the time of our witness, the greater our capacity to endure the suffering, the difficulty, the tribulation that lies before us. We've got to prepare ourselves to face that difficulty. And the way that we prepare ourselves is by learning of, understanding, appreciating, apprehending through faith all the promises that are ours in union with Christ. Amen. Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for these promises. Thank you for this encouragement. Thank you for um, this picture of the church that we see. Help us, Lord, to be faithful in our own day as we carry the torch, as it were, surrounded by that great cloud of witnesses. Help us to be faithful as witnesses to our Lord Jesus Christ in our own generation until the end. Help us to persevere. Uh, Lord, help us to endure. Help us to endure knowing uh, what awaits us the glorious blessings of the future age, the joy that is set before us to be in fellowship and communion with our God and fellowship with our Lord Jesus Christ, singing praises to his name. Thank you, Lord, for this blessed promise of the kingdom. Pray that you will keep it in front of our eyes as we keep our eyes fixed on eternal and unseen things in the heavenlies as we live in this present age and face the persecutions and tribulations that will surely be ours as witnesses for our Lord Jesus Christ. Be with us as we do. Hello, and thanks for listening. My name is Mark Brashear, and I have the blessed privilege of serving with the Saints at Cornerstone Church near Orlando, Florida. We're so grateful that you've connected with us through the sermon that you've just heard. For more information, visit us at cornerstoneorlando.org. Or better yet, 
Come and see us on the Lord's Day at 3370 Snow Hill Road in Oviedo, Florida. We're just east of Orlando and about 15 minutes from the campus at UCF. It would be a joy to have you worship with us.